This is Pastor Hal Mayer bringing you another vital message to help you understand the times in which we live so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Dear friends, welcome to the new Keep the Faith ministry format. You may be, for the first time, receiving this message on CD. Those who did not return our yellow renewal cards have automatically received CDs instead of tapes. If you received a CD and you still need to have a cassette, please fill in the subscription renewal card enclosed in this mailing and return it to us. You may also contact us to renew your subscription by emailing us or sending us a letter in the post. Our postal address is on the tape. And our email address is subscriptions at ktfministry.org. That's subscriptions at ktfministry.org. Eventually, we are planning to remove those from our list that have not renewed or responded in some way. We want to be sure that we are using God's money wisely and sending the sermons to those that are genuinely interested. If you already sent in the yellow card, or if you have renewed your subscription through letter or email, you need not do anything. But if you have not, please return the enclosed card today. We pray that the messages are a great blessing to you and that you and your family are continuing to be faithful to the Lord. If you have received a CD, after the message this month is over, including the prayer and music, there is a special update on religious liberty and fulfilling prophecy. So stay tuned. If you want to switch to CD Media for future sermons, which will regularly include this section, just contact us and we will be happy to switch you over. For those of you that don't receive CDs, you may download the extra section to this message from our website at www. .ktfministry.org. Click on the Sermons link, find this month's sermon, click the link and scroll down to the end of the sermon. You'll find the section on religious liberty. My message this month is very sobering message. I believe that it must be presented because it is important for God's people who are preparing for the coming of Jesus to understand the forces they face. The scripture says, None of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Daniel 12.10 My message is about man's inhumanity to man. Just watching the news concerning the Abu Ghraib prison abuse scandal raises questions in my mind about the ability of human beings to resist the temptation to abuse those they despise or hate. Jesus himself was terribly abused by the Romans, but often we brush his treatment aside on the basis that those people were living in another era, one more barbaric and cruel. We also brush aside the abuse of alleged heretics, who were often far more loyal to God and his word than was the professed church, because again, it was a barbaric time in history. But as this message unfolds, you will see that human nature is much the same today as it was in previous ages, 
and that unless prevented by the Spirit of God, abuse and torture are resorted to just as readily as in previous ages. Not even law can prevent it from happening when passions are inflamed. How should we think about this, and most importantly, how should we we prepare for what is inevitably coming? But first, let us ask our Lord for His guidance as we talk about this difficult topic. Our Father in heaven, through Jesus' name we come to you and ask for your Holy Spirit to enlighten us as we discuss a topic that will perhaps contain some fearful thoughts concerning the future of God's people. We pray that you will help us understand that your perfect love casts out all fear and that you can give even the weakest person your power and courage to face whatever you permit to come their way. Help us to prepare our hearts for that which would tempt us to let go of our hold on Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Matthew 24, 9 says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. What does it mean to be hated of all nations? What happens to people when their neighbors are angry at them? Hate is a passionate term. It is usually a reaction to a real or supposed offense. The time of trouble that is about to break upon our earth is a time of greatest difficulty for those who will remain faithful to the God of heaven. When only one or two are angry, there is generally restraint in society against abuse. But when there is a culture of hatred or when passions are inflamed against a minority group of people, this changes the chemistry of society and opens the door to actions that are otherwise thought to be inappropriate. Let me tell you a little story that happened to me personally that opened my eyes to this troubling issue. I just knew God was speaking to me through this experience. I was standing at the checkout line in a grocery store some months ago. It was just after the American soldiers pulled Saddam Hussein out of a hole in the ground. All over the tabloids and newspapers was the picture of his haggard face. There at the checkout counter was a tabloid with his picture, and as I waited for the customers in front of me to finish their checkout, I was meditating on this picture. In my heart, I was wondering how Saddam Hussein would ever hear the gospel. And if he did, could such a hardened man be reached by its saving truth? Suddenly, the man in front of me interrupted my thoughts, and with fire in his eyes and, and venom in his voice, he said, Do you know what I would do if I were President Bush? I looked at him in surprise. Obviously, he'd seen me contemplating the picture. What would you do? I said. Pointing his finger at the picture of Saddam, he said, I'd give that man 24 hours to tell me where his lieutenants were, or I would burn him at the stake. My mouth flew open in shock. 
and I had to regain my composure. I had never heard anyone say something so barbaric in this modern, enlightened age. I was so stunned that I stared at him and could say absolutely nothing. A few minutes later, as I walked out the door, having completed my purchase, my mind asked God why I went through that little exchange in the grocery store. Then it dawned on me that God was telling me something about the future. That man was telling me what he would do if he could get his own hands on Saddam Hussein. But Saddam Hussein is halfway around the world. That would be impossible. Then God impressed upon my mind that when the anger of the people is turned against God's people and they are greatly impassioned, they will resort to methods of barbarism that, are un that under normal circumstances are unthinkable. Listen to this warning statement from Great Controversy, page 608. As the defenders of truth refuse to honor the Sunday Sabbath, some of them will be thrust into prison, some will be exiled, some will be treated as slaves. To human wisdom, all this now seems impossible. But as the restraining spirit of God is withdrawn from men, and they shall be under the control of Satan who hates the divine precepts, there will be strange developments. The heart can be very cruel when God's fear and love are removed. Then on page 609, God's servant says, The same trials have been experienced by men of God in ages past. She then mentions Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Tyndall, Baxter, and Wesley, and informs us that against these men persecution raged with relentless fury. I think we need to understand what is involved in this term, persecution. In the weeks following my grocery store encounter, the prison abuse scandal at Abu Ghraib was revealed. As I read the reports, I again was impressed by the barbarism and the lack of respect for human dignity. Human rights were completely ignored and personal indignities were heaped upon those prisoners by our good American soldiers. I thought of Jesus and how they had done similar indignities to him. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Matthew twenty-five forty. Whatever we do to oppress others or abuse them is what we are doing unto Christ, even if they don't know him. No doubt many of those prisoners were bad men and needed to be incarcerated. However, they must not be mistreated. Later I read about the abuse of prisoners at the U.S. base in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which included sexually loaded torment. When President Bush declared war on terror, little did the American people or the rest of the world realize what would happen. Taliban warriors from Afghanistan were airlifted to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and detained for questioning. The Defense Department classified these warriors as enemy combatants rather than prisoners of war. President Bush decided 
that detainees were, and I quote, not entitled to prisoner of war protections under the 1949 Geneva Conventions because they did not wear uniforms or insignia. I've quoted that from USA Today, December 2, 2004. This actually meant that interrogators could use methods such as torture, intimidation, humiliation, and other techniques to get confessions and information which would not be permitted under the Geneva Conventions, all on the basis that these combatants were not part of a regularized military or were not part of an army of a nation-state. It was also argued that the public, and judges in particular, should defer to the president when at war, giving him the authority to decide how to treat prisoners. This is also quoted from that USA Today article I mentioned a moment ago. This, in essence, sweeps aside human rights, as you will see, and gives the president much more power and flexibility in dealing with those who have offended America and its people. It also set up an opportunity for torture and abuse to be used in numerous cases while leaders look the other way or even justify the abuse. There was an outcry from those concerned about civil liberties, and the Bush administration hastened to clarify that the prisoners would be treated using the same guidelines as those in the Geneva Conventions, even though they did not apply. This statement has almost been forgotten once revelations of abuse became widespread. The detainees could not even challenge their detention in court. USA Today, December 2, 2004, pointed out that the detainees did not have attorneys and could not see much of the evidence against them because it was secret. This disturbing approach is strikingly similar to some of the methods used by the Inquisition in the Dark Ages. Could the United States be practicing inquisitorial skills to be used later against God's people? By the time they were able to address their legal standing in June of 2004, when the Supreme Court finally struck down the administration's policy, see USA Today, January 5, 2005, called Tough Questions Await Gonzalez, the prisoners had already been interrogated, using torture and intimidation, and had much less value to the United States for intelligence purposes by then. But more was to come. On December 17, 2004, the Washington Post disclosed that the CIA had secret facility located within Guantanamo Bay. This detention facility, the Post reported, was erected to house the Pentagon's high-value detainees, and up until then have never been mentioned in public. The CIA detainees, the, re the Post reported, are held under separate rules and far greater secrecy. In light of the revelations of abuse and mistreatment in the less secret facilities, Many now wonder what actually goes on inside this inner prison. 
And then I read a shocking article in The New Yorker in the February 14, 2005 issue about how the CIA contracts interrogation to countries where human rights are not respected so that they can use torture and other aggressive forms of pressure to get prisoners to talk. This article is available on the web and is called Outsourcing Torture. They use methods that would not be acceptable in the United States. Mostly, those under CI management are secretly held in undisclosed locations. They are often never heard from again. And since it is not the U.S. that is conducting the torture, the United States does not get criticized for it. The London Times, for February 16, 2005, spoke of the New Yorker magazine. Simon Jenkins wrote, The magazine collates mounting evidence from victims of Donald Rumsfeld's policy of extraordinary rendition. This policy was approved by George Bush and employs removal units, that's a military term, to kidnap people of any nationality and fly them in great secrecy to client states that employ torture. The results are fed back into the intelligence loop. The countries include Syria, Jordan, Morocco, Egypt, and probably Uzbekistan. Let me read to you parts of the New Yorker article. On January 27, 2005, President Bush, in an interview with the Times, assured the world that torture is never acceptable, nor do we hand over people to countries that do torture. The article then describes what happened to Maher Arar two years before. Arar is a Canadian citizen who was arrested on September 26, 2002 at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York as he was changing planes on suspicion of being a terrorist. The U.S. flew him to Syria on a government executive jet where he endured months of brutal interrogation, including torture. They whipped his hands repeatedly with two-inch thick electrical cables and kept him in a windowless underground cell. Not even animals could withstand it, he said. He eventually confessed to anything his tormentors wanted him to say. A year later, in October 2003, Arar was released without charges after the Canadian government took up his case. The article goes on to say, Rendition was originally carried out on a limited basis. But after September 11, when President Bush declared a global war on terrorism, the program expanded beyond recognition, becoming, according to a former CIA official, an abomination. In 1998, the article continues, Congress passed legislation declaring that it is the policy of the United States not to expel, extradite, or otherwise affect the involuntary return of any person to a country in which the person would be in danger of being subjected to torture. According to the article, the Bush administration argued against this legislation on the basis that these terrorist suspects 
who are not attached to any recognized state need tough new rules of engagement. What happens when the same level of seriousness and tough new rules of engagement are expanded and used against God's people? I'll read on. The CIA itself is holding dozens of high-value terrorist suspects outside the territorial jurisdiction of the U.S., in addition to the estimated 550 detainees in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. At the request of the CIA, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld personally ordered that a prisoner in Iraq be hidden from Red Cross officials for several months, and Army General Paul Kern told Congress that the CIA may have hidden up to a hundred detainees. The Geneva Conventions of 1949, which established norms on the treatment of soldiers and civilians captured in war, require the prompt registration of detainees so that their treatment can be monitored. But the administration argues that Al-Qaeda members and supporters who are not part of a state-sponsored military, are not covered by the conventions. This practice of avoiding the law in dealing with those suspected of a crime on mere technicalities is a practice that is common to totalitarian regimes. How can this happen in a country such as the United States, you might ask? But let us not forget the inspired warning I read to you earlier that strange things are coming upon God's people. The article continues by describing the way in which the rendition program was established and the horrible treatment of a number of prisoners who had been in its grip. The New Yorker article quotes Dan Coleman, a former FBI agent, as saying that after September 11, the CIA has seemed to think it's operating under different rules, and that it has extra-legal abilities outside the U.S. Whatever they do is all right. It all takes place overseas. Let me remind you that the Spirit of Prophecy says that our country shall repudiate every principle of its Constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. That's found in the fifth volume of the Testimonies, page 451. In the all-too-real events that I have just read about, it should be remembered that it is not necessary to overturn or change the Constitution to repudiate its principles. Just outsource the things that the Constitution will not allow, or redefine the meaning of the Constitution so that anything desired can be justified. Some argue that this kind of approach to human rights is okay because these prisoners are not American citizens and that this could never happen to U.S. citizens because of their constitutional protections. Though this is no comfort to our international listeners, it happens that it is no comfort to U.S. citizens either. The Atlantic Monthly magazine published an article called Enemy Americans in its July-August 2004 issue. This article was about two American citizens who were being held indefinitely without due process of law. They were being held without being charged 
and without trial in violation of the Constitution of the United States. While this sounds like tactics that are often used in communist China, President Bush claimed the right to do this in the United States on the basis that these Americans were actually enemy combatants and that they may be imprisoned indefinitely even if they are American citizens. In his announcement about the arrest of Jose Padilla, John Ashcroft stated that he had recommended that the President of the United States, in his capacity as Commander-in-Chief, determine that Padilla is an enemy combatant who poses a serious and continuing threat to the American people and our national security. He also stated that Padilla had been transferred from the custody of the Justice Department to the custody of the Defense Department. Padilla remained in the Defense Department control for a long time without charge or trial, and for much of the time without access to a lawyer. How easy would it be, once this practice is accepted, for U.S. citizens to just disappear, having been rendered to some country or the Defense Department for brutalization? What happens when you are reclassified as an enemy because of your faith? It is very likely that you will lose your constitutional protections in the name of the new interpretation of law. The American administration and military asserted that it wanted to treat terrorism cases under the laws of war, but in reality that only means that the treatment would be consistent with the law as interpreted by the administration. The Atlantic Monthly articles suggested that the justification for this is the idea that this is a different kind of war. If the American people allow the president or the military the right to detain even American citizens in time of war without due process and in secret detention facilities, there is no telling to what lengths depraved and unrestrained human nature will go in its abuse of the human rights of those in its prisons. When a government uses secret facilities to detain prisoners, it removes public accountability for the behavior and actions of those involved in the treatment of prisoners and of the administration and opens the door to systematic torture in the interrogation of even its own citizens. One might argue that it is okay because the American citizens involved in this matter were planning to attack the United States. But this was unproven. The founding fathers of the United States knew about the abuses of the Holy Roman Empire. They were aware that without protections it would happen again. So they built them into the Constitution to protect against inhumanity. The Abu Ghraib scandal revealed to the world and especially to America's enemies, that the United States would allow abuse and torture and sends a strong message that the United States is on no higher moral ground than they are. Even though some of the soldiers involved were punished, it is becoming increasingly clear that the administration is promoting the use of torture as a tactic of war. 
Don't think that this can't happen to God's people, when yet another new kind of war is declared against those who uphold God's law, and yet new and expanded definitions of law will justify abuse and torture. Since Abu Ghraib, a flood of stories and allegations of torture and mistreatment have surfaced. This greatly increased the hatred of America by its enemies because of what they saw as hypocrisy. America is supposed to be the world leader in human rights, but now its reputation has been seriously damaged. I suspect that these revelations were allowed to come to light at a time when Americans are willing to accept them and even adopt them. They will not protest very much. These revelations will also further desensitize the American people for more abuse in the future. You see, Satan is a master at this process. He has perfected it over thousands of years. The New Yorker article summarized an interview with one of the attorneys involved in framing U.S. government policy concerning torture, who suggested that President Bush's victory in the 2004 election, along with the relatively mild challenge to Alberto Gonzalez, whom we will discuss in a minute, was proof that the debate is over. He said, The issue is dying out. The public has had its referendum. In other words, the American public is comfortable with the new policy of torture. The government is so sure of winning the debate that it is now willing to let the secrets out in the media so that they can be mildly debated in the press, and so that the American people would become used to it and hardly raise an eyebrow when the enemy is sufficiently villainized. But the deeper questions that haunt me are concerning the eventual expansion of this rendering policy to other groups of people who will one day be accused of being enemies of the state. When passions flare up against God's people as they have against the terrorists, will many of them be rendered or tortured to get information about other followers of Christ? The Bush administration has been in the forefront of changing American practice concerning torture. On January 22, 2003, longtime friend and legal counselor of George W. Bush, Alberto Gonzalez, wrote a memo to the Justice Department seeking an opinion about the use of methods of interrogation that were forbidden by the Geneva Conventions. I will read from USA Today, January 5, 2005. As the chief architect of the Bush administration's legal strategy against terrorism, Gonzalez sought to expand his boss's authority to detain and question suspects and justify the use of stress and duress interrogation techniques that are banned under international law. Clearly, Mr. Gonzalez was attempting to get the Justice Department to authorize torture and intimidation outside the bounds of international law. In the memo, Mr. Gonzalez stated that the war on terrorism is a new kind of war that requires the United States to go to unusual lengths to get information about potential terrorist plots. 
USA Today further revealed that Mr. Gonzalez's memo stated that new circumstances had made internationally recognized Geneva Convention's limitations on questioning enemy prisoners obsolete, and that some Geneva restrictions were now quaint. In other words, Mr. Gonzalez was seeking support from the Justice Department to use torture to get information in violation of the Geneva Conventions. Now that the U.S. is the undisputed superpower of the world, who can stand up against them? Not even the U.N. can take action against the United States for its human rights abuses because of its veto power. The U.S. is immune to any U.N. sanctions or military force. On January 7, 2005, USA Today reported that Mr. Gonzalez was instrumental in decisions to detain non-citizens and citizens alike as long as the war on terror lasts, and to use stress and duress interrogation tactics to gather intelligence on potential terrorist attacks. What kind of stress and duress tactics are being referred to? On January 5, 2005, the Washington Post listed some of them in an article about Mr. Gonzalez. I will quote from the article. The CIA wanted to use open-handed slapping, the threat of live burial, and waterboarding, which is a technique that produces an unbearable sensation of drowning. But these tactics are mild. Other reports include electrical shocks to the genitals, standing on tiptoe in water up to the nostrils, or crouched in a small cell in knee-deep water for long periods of time, hung from the ceiling or door upside down for extended periods of time, etc. Does this remind you of the Inquisition of the Dark Ages? It does me. Amazingly, President Bush then successfully nominated Mr. Gonzalez as the U.S. Attorney General after John Ashcroft resigned. He is also considered to be a likely choice for a, for a seat on the Supreme Court. Imagine that, one of the key men responsible for creating the new U.S. policy about the treatment of prisoners is now the head of the Justice Department. What will happen if he becomes a member of the Supreme Court? Congress even tried to intervene and restrict the use of torture. But on January 15, 2005, the International Herald Tribune reported that the U.S. Congress scrapped a bill that would prevent the U.S. use of extreme torture. I will quote the Tribune. The restrictions would have extended to intelligence officers a prohibition against the use of torture or inhumane treatment. Congress was going to restrict the use of torture, but something happened, and they dropped the restrictions from the proposed law. The Tribune revealed what happened. I will quote again. But in intense closed-door negotiations, according to congressional officials, Four senior lawmakers from the House and Senate deleted the restrictions from the final bill. Also, the Tribune reported that 
In a letter to members of Congress, Condoleezza Rice, the National Security Advisor at the time, expressed opposition to the measure on the ground that it provides legal protections to foreign prisoners to which they are not now entitled under applicable law and policy. This very revealing statement shows that even though torture and inhumane treatment is against international law, the Bush administration clearly believes that it can violate those laws. There will be no barrier to torture and abuse against prisoners detained because of their religious beliefs or practices, particularly if suspects are secretly rendered to outside nations. That day will come. These revelations should be a warning to every faithful follower of Christ. I tell you these things because I love you, and I want to see you and your family saved in the kingdom. I also want to see you secure in Christ during the enormous crisis ahead. From the ninth volume of the Testimonies, page 16, I read, It is impossible to give any idea of the experience of the people of God who shall be alive upon the earth when celestial glory and a repetition of the persecutions of the past are blended. Notice that there will be a blending of celestial glory with persecutions of the past. We often think of the celestial glory, but we rarely think of the persecutions that go with it. God's prophet makes this interesting statement in the book Great Controversy, page 581. Rome is silently growing into power. Her doctrines are exerting their influence in legislative halls, in the churches, and in the hearts of men. She is piling up her lofty and massive structures in the secret recesses of which her former persecutions will be repeated. The effort to undermine humane treatment of prisoners will one day be used against those trying to uphold God's law against national and international opposition. When a nation becomes angry at a group of its own people, to what lengths will its institutions and people go to abuse and torture those it sees as its enemies, whether perceived as real or not? When God's people are the focus of the anger, Will reason and due process of law prevail? I think not. By that time, changes in legal process will have become so com compromised and legitimized that it is likely that the treatment of God's people will be even worse. It is far more likely that there will be those that take the law into their own hands or at least take substantial liberties and mete out stress and duress torture on those they have been led to despise. There is a famous and interesting study that was done concerning prisoner abuse at Stanford University in 1971. This classic experiment conducted by Philip Zimbardo has considerable parallels to the abusive treatment of Iraqi and Guantanamo Bay prisoners. His findings are published on the web. Mr. Zimbardo describes what happened. Our planned two-week investigation into the psychology of prison life 
had to be ended prematurely after only six days because of what the situation was doing to the college students who participated. In only a few days, our guards became sadistic and our prisoners became depressed and showed signs of extreme stress. Zimbardo also reported that the prisoners were degraded and began to display deep psychological problems. Some broke down emotionally. Another developed a physical rash. Others tried to cope by being good prisoners. But by the end of the study, the prisoners were disintegrated as individuals, he said. The experiment was ended because it was discovered that the guards were escalating their abuse of the prisoners at night when no researchers were there to observe. Their boredom at night drove them to ever more pornographic and degrading abuse of the prisoners. Out of more than 50 observers, only one objected to the treatment of prisoners as being immoral. This last point is significant. If people generally believe that a person has done something wrong, they will tolerate abusing him. It is also interesting to note that humanity in general, when put in a position to abuse power, has a hard time resisting the temptation. What do you think will happen when God's people are hated by all men for my name's sake, as Jesus said they would in Matthew 10:22? Incidentally, there was another prison experiment done at Wheaton College in Illinois with Christian students from good homes. Older students were the guards and younger students were the prisoners. The story was written up in Christianity Today, August 2004. Within an hour, the foul language started. Then other vulgar behavior followed. During the middle of the night in some experiments, the guards stripped the inmates, handcuffed their ankles in painful positions, and made them eat food off the floor. And these were Christians! Listen to this statement from Ministry of Healing, page 163. How little do we enter into sympathy with Christ on that which should be the strongest bond of union between us and Him, compassion for depraved, Guilty, suffering souls, dead in trespasses and sins. The inhumanity of man toward man is our greatest sin. Human nature is depraved, and without the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, they will disrespect their fellow human beings and abuse them even while they carry the identity of a Christian. Can you see how that even Christians can do things to their fellow Christians that are very unchristian? Let me read to you from the book Great Controversy, page 622. The time of trouble such as never was is soon to open upon us, and we shall need an experience which we do not now possess and which many are too indolent to obtain. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. But this is not true of the crisis before us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. In that time of trial, every soul must stand for himself before God. That's pretty serious. 
God is looking for faithful souls whom he can train for the crisis. But what kind of training are you going to need in order to stand faithful under pressure? Here is another statement from Great Controversy. Again, it is from page 622. Those who exercise but little faith now are in the greatest danger of falling under the power of satanic delusions and the decree to compel the conscience. And even if they endure the test, they will be plunged into deeper distress and anguish in the time of trouble, because they have never made it a habit to trust in God. The lessons of faith which they have neglected, they will be forced to learn under a terrible pressure of discouragement. We should now acquaint ourselves with God by proving His promises. Angels record every prayer that is earnest and sincere. We should re rather dispense with selfish gratifications than neglect communion with God. The deepest poverty, the greatest self-denial with His approval is better than riches, honors, ease, and friendship without it. We must take time to pray. If we allow our minds to be absorbed by worldly interest, the Lord may give us time by removing from us our idols of gold, of houses, or of fertile lands. Brothers and sisters, we must become sincere and earnest in our prayers. The time is short. How will we ever resist the temptations that are coming to compromise our faith if we don't have a solid connection with the God of the universe. How are you using your period of probation? Are you, my friend, seeking the Lord with a sincere heart to learn His will? Are you daily learning the lessons of trust in God? Oh, what a challenge! The fearful scenes to come upon this world in the very near future, will lead to great anguish upon God's true people. You will need an experience with God that will hold you steady through the most difficult chaos this world has ever seen. We need to pray for courage. Listen to this statement from Our High Calling. We are not to have the courage and fortitude of martyrs of old until brought into the position they were in. Should there be a return of persecution, there would be grace given to arouse every energy of the soul to show a true heroism. The emphasis of our preparation should be on learning the lessons of faith in God now. We cannot learn them at that time. That's the time for strength. But now is the time for preparation. By the way, that statement was from page 125 in Our High Calling. Remember the promise of God. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Revelation 3.10 let us pray and ask God to give us the experience we need to prepare us for the events that will especially test God's remnant people. Our Father in heaven, we humbly ask 
that you will draw very near to us. Please, Lord, give us the experience we need to be faithful when the whole world seems against us. Give us a personal experience with Christ that will fortify us with faith, love, and courage. Thank you that Jesus died for us and went through his crisis. Now we can understand ours, and he can give us strength. Now we can take courage that he will not allow us to go through anything that we cannot bear, but will, in the hour of temptation, make us a way of escape. Please, Lord, make us your treasure. Give us victory over all our sins. And may we ever look to you for courage, strength, and power. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a cross for everyone to bear, but there's a heaven for each soul to share. There's a place in heaven waiting me. Oh,